Benuel did not want mystery to emanate from a well-contrived chiaroscuro, from the timely creaking of a door, from blurring, from slow motion. He thoroughly distrusted every kind of cinematographic effect, rejecting it as facile, arty. Rejecting virtuosity implies that you are sure of the power of what you're showing. Those are words from the film's screenwriter Jean-Claude Carrière on Louis Benoit's 1964 film Diary of a Chambermaid. Seeing Faces in Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer. And each week I invite a guest on to discuss the film and the artist's filmography. I'm your host, Felicia Maroney, and this is a special features episode. And these monthly bonus episodes are outside the filmographies of the current director in focus. Special features came about because I want to talk to someone about a film either they love or I love. And hopefully we both love. Today's film is Diary of a Chambermaid. So quick synopsis of the film is a sophisticated and self-assured woman from Paris joins a middle-class rural estate as a maid and causes quite a stir among the variously uptight, perverse, and violent inhabitants. It stars Jeanne Moreau as Célestine, Gilles Chéret as Joseph, Daniel Ivernel as Monsieur Auger, Françoise Dugagny as Madame Monte, and Michel Piccoli as Monsieur Monte. It's written by Louis Bunuel and Jean-Claude Carrière, directed by Louis Bunuel, cinematography by Roger Fallou, and edited by Louisette Haute-Cœur. Today, my guest is Jeff Thomas, and you should recognize him from our episode on the silence for my Bergman series. Highly recommend you go back and listen to that. If you haven't already, you can learn more about Jeff, and you can listen to a great conversation on a great film. Today, we're talking about Diary of a Chambermaid, which is Louis Bunuel. And first and foremost, Jeff, thank you so much for coming back. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me back. This is this is a film that I first saw a couple years ago for the first time. And I know that you've brought forth a Bunuel film, the film club. So I knew that you're a fan and it had been on my mind, the film. And I was like, OK, I, I wonder if you'd want to talk about this, so I was really happy that you you agreed. But before we get into the film, as your returning guest, uh, instead of having you reintroduce yourself, like I said, for the listeners, definitely go back and listen to The Silence. If you, Jeff, would like to recommend a couple films that you've watched in the last couple months, couple weeks that you think that listeners should add to their watch list, what would those be? Yeah, so I have been... At least the last couple of weeks in the throes of trying to watch like every new release awards contender type of film, right? Yeah, yeah, I've been watching a lot of those. So out of all that that group, I would say Aki Karazmaki's Fallen Leaves. That's a good recommendation uh, to go see. It's brisk, kind of tainted love story. It heavily involves cinema, going to the cinema. And and kind of revolves around movies. So that one's out of uh, all of those December films. That's that's a good one. And then I saw this for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Destry rides again. Uh, okay. a, yep. Yeah, you've seen that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Western with uh, Jimmy Stewart and Marlena Dietrich. Mm-hmm. I was so blown away by that movie. Like it's yeah. so it's good. It's so wild. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's it's just f- so much full of energy, and of course, watching it, I'm like, I could just watch Blazing Saddles right after this, and yep. you know, <laughs> Madeline Kahn do the the same thing. Uh, but Dusty Rides Again is, yeah, it's a really it's a really good western. Yeah, that was one I think I saw it actually for the first time last year. It was on Criterion Channel. It was just one I hadn't really heard of it. And I thought I knew most of the Jimmy Stewart Westerns and it was great. They're great together. And I just kind of like how dark it gets when it needs to. It's it's a big hitter. It's a good one. It's like a weird underrated gem that people don't really talk about as often. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, those two. I mean, the I was going to say uh, Kinji Fukasaku's uh, Yakuza Papers. Um, okay. It's a series of five yakuza like kind of gangster pictures okay i spent the whole i spent about six months last year going through all of them yeah it starts in post-war japan japan and kind of 
it goes and it, and it traverses like 25 years over five movies of how the yakuza sprung up through black market and and uh became as powerful as it became uh kind of controlling all all uh everything uh in terms of industry and and politics and its influence and yeah it, those those are really great movies you can find them on org. they're not i think there's there's a arrow i think may have come out with a a box set but Archive.org is is kind of a good resource. I love it. You know, as someone who watches a lot of older films, it's a great resource for stuff that's just not out on anything. And the, the quality is often good enough, you know. Yeah. You're not going to complain if it's free, so. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Yeah, those ones I actually hadn't heard of, so that's cool. I'll, I'll add those to my list. And Karismaki, I love. I haven't seen the new one yet, but I he's definitely one of my favorites. I love love his vibe so everyone should add those to their watch list but we're here to talk about diary of a chambermaid and i'm just wondering if you recall the first time you watched this film and what your thoughts were back then on that first watch yeah the first time i watched this i was probably probably 16 years old 17 years old and in the last episode i i we in which we spoke i kind of talked about making a list of directors and their films and their filmographies and certain mm-hmm. creating my own curriculum of, of, of filmmakers and Buñuel was on there. Uh, so this would, would have been during that time of like, okay, I got to watch all the, all of his films. I hadn't seen it since. So my recollection of it was kind of a mixed, it was like a mixed memory of, of this and uh, Belle de Jour, which so rewatching it, I was like, oh, this isn't Belle de Jour. It's <laughs> completely different. That makes sense, though. Yeah. To like mix the two, I think, both French films and they have similar looks to them. Uh, I haven't seen Belle de Jour in so long. I should rewatch it. It's been a very long time. Yeah. I, I the first time I saw this, I said like a couple of years ago, and I just happened to be in New York date for a wedding and came down to the city overnight and i usually try and see what's playing and film form happened to be playing this at the time that worked and i was like okay let's go watch it i'm sure it'll be good didn't know anything about it and there was a pretty good crowd there so it's like it's lucky to see a film for the first time in the cinema but it was just as good at home a couple years later it was a great watch so shout out film forum though that's definitely one of my favorites I'm always just like itching and I'm looking at their calendars sometimes. I'm like, oh man, I want to fly over just for like certain movies. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a good spot. It's a great experience, it sounds like. It really is. I've seen quite a few now there and I've, it's always just been really good. And there's always been like a good crowd there. So I'm jealous of uh, people like yourself who get to experience New York cinemas. So you said that you went through and watched a bunch of Benwell in your teens. Would you consider yourself a fan? Do you like most of his work? Do you like certain eras of his work more than others? Yeah, I'm a huge Buñuel fan. Like I considered him as one of the like pillars of European art house cinema with, you know, Fellini and Bergman and then Antonioni, like he's mm. those really important figures in 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 film. Not least because like his life and career spans three quarters, if more, <laughs> of the 20th century, you know? Yeah. And it, he, you know, he's an important figure in surrealism. Like he just kind of pops up in so many different places. But I was, so I was mostly familiar, like I would assume everybody else is familiar with his French uh, period, right? Yeah. Maybe maybe his his work with uh, uh, Dali Salvador Dali uh, mm-hmm. in Paris in the twenties, and then the, his French films, yeah, with Belle de Jour, with The Milky Way, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, uh, Phantom of Liberty. Like I, I was mostly a, like obsessed is 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 a good word for it because I would just rewatch these films a lot. Then within the last year or so, I got into his Mexican films, which aren't necessarily seen as much because they're just not that available. Yeah. And those, 
they're they're good on their own, but they're definitely like he's learning in Mexico. He's really learning how to make films uh, like efficiently. Yeah, and yeah, not only infuse some of his political ideologies and his artistic eye and his surrealist uh, lazy eye, I would say, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> but yeah, it it all uh, everything adds up from his Mexican period to when he gets back into France, he's a lot more melodramatic in Mexico. There's still many, uh, many of his films, uh, that he made during that, that period in the, I think it's in the, yeah, the forties and the fifties that I just haven't seen, but the French period is, it's kind of, he synthesizes all of his ideas that he was toying around with in Mexico. And when he gets back to to France and Paris. Yeah. He does have such a great, filmography and like i've only basically touched the surface like i've seen all the big hitters and every year because criterion channel is obviously great for that and they're obviously big fans of Benuel, so they'll have his stuff circling so anytime they've added something or i try and watch it so still nowhere near any you know finish his filmography but i like there's certain stuff that i like more than others and there's some stuff that just blows my mind it's just like so amazing to me i definitely would love to do a month on him soon but glad that we're talking about diary of a chambermaid first um if you're ready we can get into the film though one of the first things i want to chat about because the most obvious thing especially if we're talking about his work in france and common theme throughout his films which is like commentary on the bourgeoisie which is very much this film and this is an adaptation of a novel and it wasn't the first film adaptation of this Renoir did also did an adaptation they're very different I managed to watch it before this they're very different in their own ways because these are two directors who comment on the same things but in different ways because Renoir's on the inside you know he's a French director Benoit's on the outside of that looking in there's no way that you cannot read this as a commentary on the bourgeoisie and you it, it's very apparent what his thoughts are on this because it's i haven't read the novel but reading about the making of the film i know he took liberties and changing certain things about the characters and the way they behaved and and the sexual politics and so on so as being a benwell fan yourself how do you feel this fits within his filmography of like commentaries on people with money and the rich and how he feels about that yeah obviously he's he that's that's a big uh topic with him if he if if another one of his films explicitly has it in the title right yeah uh, I, you know he is talking about the bourgeoisie but he's he's spanish so I, mm-hmm. it's he's talking specifically about the french rural yeah wealthy it's they're perverts like (laughs) yeah they are they're the patriarch of the of the manor the the grandfather i guess the the Mm -hmm. man he's kind of a freak you know and i think that's nobody in nobody in the family is sexually active they're all kind Mm of uh behind closed doors doing these things that everybody else is just out in the open doing. As far as like where it fits in his filmography, I I think this is this might be like because I think Bill DeJour was right after this. I think he made, and that's I think so. But I I want to say because I'm not a I'm obviously not a scholar on, on Buñuel, but I this mm-hmm. might be like his first one of his first uh, uh, forays into commenting on the bourgeoisie and just how inept they are and you know the entire time i was watching it i was like what do they do like yep. are they wealthy and that's it because yeah <laughs> they don't have, seem to have any occupation other than ordering around their servants and doing you know yard work and hunting and uh hunting deer or not deer uh rabbits you know and uh toying with the help basically to their own whims uh yeah they're they're pretty uh 
but uh, it's also twofold because one of them is Jewish, and then it's like, okay, well, I don't, I don't, speci- I don't really know what he's or what it is in the novel about about that whole situation between the family at this manor and the neighbors who are Semitic, and then the the you know the groundskeeper who is working for them has been working for them but is nationalistic and also anti-semitic it's like yeah it's a it's a pretty yeah it's pretty messed up (laughs) no there's a lot of layers to it and i'm glad that you mentioned like what do they do for money because obviously there's money sitting there and they're all sitting on the money but it's like is there new money coming into this or are you guys just exhausting this money at this point because obviously the father's not going to work but the daughter just works by telling the help essentially, hey, this is how you need to do this. You need to polish this. Make sure you don't touch this. And yeah. she's also weird. She's also, I mean, we'll get into the characters too, but she has a lot of layers. There's a weird scene too where she seems to be conducting some sort of like science experiment for her bath. She's very particular. These people are weird, but then there's like that power structure also within the the servants too. The only person who seems to be liberated is Celestine because she's her own person and she is in full control. And I do definitely want to talk about her specifically and your thoughts on her. But before we get into that, I you mentioned you know the sexual politics of this film and it, how no one is apart from Celestine liberated and there's a lot of repression. It's seen in different ways that the daughter. So she can't, essentially she's saying she can't satisfy her husband because it pains her physically to do that. And there's that element, but there's also the element that she also kind of likes that she has to prevent. Her her husband will get no satisfaction from her and he's under her thumb because she's the one with money. He's not. So there's that. And then he, the husband, we learn that has obviously impregnated previous staff members and they've had to pay for, I'm assuming, abortions. And he's just like always hounding women around. He's hounding Celestine. And then there's the the grandfather with his foot fetish, but boot fetish. And the, it's played for laughs because it is funny. Uh, even when he dies, it's kind of funny that he dies like cradling the boots. But there's just so many different layers of sexuality and repression in this. Uh, How do you feel about it being such a prominent thing without... They do explicitly talk about it, but it's also just like hidden within each of these characters and how that works. Yeah, they're all sexually repressed. They get it out in odd ways. Like if the husband, is it? Yeah, Michelle Piccoli played Mm -hmm. by If he can't get it, get it, he shoots his rifle he chops wood he does anything else that he can do uh, to exert that 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 need i mean yeah it's it's a uh, i mean he well it what i what Buñuel is he's my immediate thought is that he's making Buñuel is making a distinction uh between two different classes in terms of the servants yeah they are liberated sexually politically even if it's dis- even if they're politi- it, the po- politics is disgusting they're still yeah. liberated and they have a, a can speak freely and the upper class they just seem like they're in a glass cage and there's no escape for them and it i don't know if he's saying or making a distinction that one is better than the other uh mm-hmm. it, it's very yeah, he's not judging. I don't think he's judging them, the characters. It, it's very oblique. Yeah, I did read a quote from him saying he specifically hates sexual perversion. And I, I thought that was curious that he said that. And he's like, I don't think that these characters are sexually perverted. I think that they don't know how to express themselves. And it's coming out in a way that is odd to certain people. Then we get that, you know, with the the grandfather, who I think is directly tied also to religion because Buñuel was Catholic. As you're saying this, I'm just being like reminded of like a documentary I saw where people were describing Buñuel as very kind of 
conservative in a way, like mm-hmm. sexually conservative. And he, he had one wife his entire life. You know, he had children. He wasn't as permiss, like sexually permissive as some of his characters in his films might, you know, lead you to believe. So yeah, yeah I can see that filtering depiction of these people. Exactly. I think it's that. And even with the, the grandfather or the father, he's not really grandfather. There's no kids involved. But the the main head of the house, Monsieur Rabot, he likes to call the chambermaids Mary, despite the fact that it's never their names and it's like a common thing. And I missed it the first time. And then on this watch, I heard that he said, oh, I always call them Marie. And it's oh, it's also in the Renoir one. So that's obviously in the book. He's like, I always just called him Mary as like a virginal thing. So he's like, because he's touching, but he's not totally touching. He likes to watch. So he's keeping a distance. He's getting essentially his rocks off by watching these women perform, just walking in boots for him. And it is played for laughs, but it's also, it is a serious thing too for this character and it down to his death. So it's interesting to have that be part of the character. And I, I just remember the first time I watched it thinking, when you watch a lot of films from this era, especially if you're watching a lot of American films, they just, they would not have done any of this. And because the Renoir one is an, a Hollywood film, it's a lot more repressed in that way because they just would not. I was just shocked at how like cheeky this one was for the time, forgetting, oh, this is France and France does whatever they want. Yeah. You know, they're... I always joke with my friend because we have like a mini little film club and I always pick French films. And she's like, oh, which perverted movie did you pick this time for this week? And I was like, they're all perverted. So it's just different degrees of perverted. <laughs> yeah, they're... <laughs> the French, uh, yeah, they do whatever they want. And... Uh, Truly. Get away with it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but Celestine, as we've been saying, is is the most liberated and she is using her sexuality as a tool. That's how I read it. She's using it to kind of bend the will of the men around her. She does it with Monsieur Monte, the the husband, or she's teasing him. She knows she doesn't care. She knows that he wants her and she knows that she'll never sleep with him, but she likes to tease him because it's it's fun for her. It's like it's an entertainment to brighten up her day because she's bored. Right. It, okay, so yeah, I'm glad we're on the same page as that because I was trying to figure out uh, watching it a uh, second time. Like, is she? She's not really playing these these games to get anywhere within a certain hierarchy or like to get money or anything like that. It is it is just a game for her because yeah, she finds pleasure and because she's. I think she's smarter. She's she's more intelligent than the people that. I've hired her, you know, because she's from Paris and everybody always mentions this. What kind of clothes are you wearing? Like, I don't, you know, they don't talk like that or wear clothes like that here. Uh, She's from Paris, you know, it's like much more experienced type of person. She just instinctively is curious and knows exactly what's happening right when she gets into the house after a long train ride and then another long uh, carriage ride. She's, She's already there. She's like... She's on the level of the bourgeoisie, but even higher because she knows how mm-hmm. to talk with them and what what can uh, upset them and what can lead them on, you know. But it isn't until she actually uses she can find a purpose for her games later on in the film that she really uses it to her advantage. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't want to give too much away uh, from the Renoir one for anyone who hasn't watched it, but the Celestines are quite different in both but for the Jeanne Moreau one I remember the first time being like why is she doing all this is she you know what is she trying to gain or is she just playing and it wasn't until the rewatch where I was like no she's just playing even when she does eventually marry the the soldier next door I think she's just like well why not like why not do that because that I'll be secure in this and then she's ordering him around so she doesn't become the servant like he was having the relationship with the previous servant. She's now having him serve her. I don't even think it's necessarily about money. It's just about being comfortable and still living the life that she wants. And maybe she's trying to avoid something in Paris, why she doesn't actually go back, even when she attempts to go back. 
at some point during the film. But you mentioned she does eventually use sex for a purpose, and that's with the character Joseph, who I think is her, as much as I hate to say it because he's obviously a vile character, he's her equal because they're both very confident. They're the only two confident characters in this film who know exactly who they are and what they're doing. Joseph's a very complicated character right off the bat. Especially if you've seen this actor and other things, you kind of, he often plays like a nasty character. But right off the bat, he's just a nasty person. And then you get into, not long after you meet him, how he feels about anyone who's not like him. His politics, his racism, sexism, how he treats the young girl, which we'll get into. And then just how he treats women. How how did you feel about that character right off the bat? Because there's a lot going on with him and he's quite abrasive. He's the most political part of this film. Well, yeah, he uh, Joseph is, I would say, yeah, he is kind of Celestine's equal in that regard of just power, power dynamics. He's He's despicable. I mean, it still is a little bit shocking to see these characters talk as bluntly as they do about just hating hating anybody that isn't them they are the equivalent of america's alt-right nationalists like yeah they they're they're like france for the french we don't like anybody that isn't french yeah i mean it's disgusting he's vile he's uh he's violent he's one you know he's violent and that comes across in the way that he treats people, but then in sort in in symbolic ways of so there's this there's this I don't know if she was an orphan or she wasn't an orphan, but she's a poor girl who yeah kind of goes around the different manners trying to sell baskets that her mother has made or food that she's foraged from the forest. And occasionally she stays at the manor with the with the servants. And at one point she's she's at the 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 dinner table where all the servants are eating. And Joseph comes in, and maybe you get the sense that he that's her his daughter, maybe. But he ends up like putting his hands around her throat, uh, yeah. like almost choking her. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and then you see him later on taking out a duck from a cage, get ready to, you know, to pluck and, and, and present to the, to the bourgeoisie for their dinner. And, you know, he grabs it by the neck, he grabs the duck by the neck and starts plucking the feathers. And that is like Celestine comes around and, and, and notices this happening because she hears the cry of this duck. And he's like, I like to torture the duck. I like to torture it. I'm like, Oh, (laughs) I mean, He's just able to like the core of him. Yeah. Yeah. That character. And it's interesting the way that the progression of that character and Philistine goes, because uh, when you're watching it for the first time, obviously you can sense she's disgusted by this man as we all are. And I know we've been kind of dancing around the scene uh, in question. So I'll just talk about it. In terms of the, the young girl that you're talking about, we see there's a tension between him and the young girl. And I also was just like, why is he so angry with this? Like, I get some people really hate kids, but like, this is like really going out of his way to be really mean to this young girl for no reason. And he, she, in, you know, kind of prancing around the forest, as you say, probably foraging, she's dressed kind of like Little Red Riding Hood. That's how I saw it. And she's got the hood up and she's kind of, and he comes across her and he says, and that's when I find there's a a visual shift. It gets very dark and there's a lot of shadows and they're in the forest and it's very still the air. And he says to her, be careful for wolves. And he goes after her. And then we get that really gruesome shot of just the bottom half for her and you can tell she's dead it's really hard and shocking to watch i i remember when i saw it at the cinema just like it was dead air in the the room like everyone was shocked i don't know how many people were seeing it for the first time even if you know seeing for the second time it's just really hard to see that because you know what's happened 
And that there's a, that's when I find the tonal shift in the story happens, where it really starts to get dark from then on. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find that that that's where it kind of shifts and then we get into darker elements of these characters? Yeah, because up until that point, there's no there's no real story going on. And you're kind of just watching day to day the interactions and the, and between everybody and who plays what role maybe other than no because the father when he dies clutching the boots that happens on like the scene right before yeah the let's see so yeah it all comes to a point or to a head of like where it goes after that but just as you're saying that yeah it does i mean uh, joseph is in the forest and he he has this look on his face when he see when the girl exits from his uh, view he suddenly realizes something like i don't i don't know what like maybe i can do he's like i can do something and he just yeah. chases he chases into the forest and then i think what makes that scene so uh powerful is it cuts to a dirty boar like a truffle hunting boar just out of nowhere i'm like what is this just careening through the forest and then it cuts to an innocent looking little rabbit and, it, and then and then it cuts to the the legs of not the whole body just the just the 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 naked legs of this little girl with these snails slowly you know going over her her knees and and yeah i don't think it was blood but it was the the blackberries or the blueberries that she was picking were smeared yeah. all over the place but yeah right after that you can't help but be more invested in what happens next because it's yeah the the funeral happens for the for the the old man and the investigation of the death of this girl happens at the same time yeah yeah and so the scene is at this point when she hears about it she's obviously distraught and wants to leave she's on her way she's at the train station at this point she's already quit she's put in her notice and she's on her way home when she hears uh, them talking about the investigation, saying that they found her body, and this is what happened when they examined it, and how long she'd been there, and she knows right away. You can see it in her face. She doesn't have to say anything. She knows. We all know who it, who did it, and she decides to go back. So that's where my question is with you, because when she goes back, we know that her goal is to get Joseph caught. And she's trying to figure out ways of doing that. And she essentially gets into a sort of relationship with him. The first viewing I had was different than this one with her. I think it was much clearer for me for the first time. But the first time I was like, is she genuine? Does she really care about this? Or is she just doing this for some sort of personal gain? What's the deal? Why is she going about it this way? She didn't need to gain his trust that way i think she could have done it a different way do you think she could have or is she also just being like i kind of want to sleep with this man for some sort of weird perverse reason too uh how do you feel about that because sometimes i have a hard time finding out or figuring out if celestine is fully genuine in her goal i think it's ambiguous yeah you know i think all those things could be could be it i think initially she wants justice for the girl because she had a connection with her and you know you could tell she feels some affinity towards her and she hates joseph uh, but uh, yeah as as it as it goes along maybe that's that's the only way that she knows how to get things done yeah. is through sex and her allure you know cuz that's yeah that's how she's been doing it and this is and at the same time he's like no i can't Joseph is saying, I, I, I can't have sex with you. I want you as my wife. So that's like, oh, okay, well, at this point, maybe she's just too far into it. And this is just, I don't know, because I don't know if she's still, she still wants justice. The further along it goes, maybe she kind of loses perspective of that and just gets caught up in one situation leading to another. Yeah, because that's interesting. So like, there's that, that he is still sort of, as much as he thinks he's liberated, he's not because he's tied to this thing of being like, I can't sleep with you before. You at least promised to marry me because he's like avoiding and avoiding. He's like, oh no, you have to remain like untouched by me until, you know, I know you're going to be my wife. 
and so on. And there's also the scene where she does go to the police station and she's going to say something about Joseph, but then she changes her mind. That that scene also, the first time I was like, now is she going to change her mind fully? Is she thinking that maybe he didn't do it or whatnot? And I think the way I read it on this view was that she realized she's going to tell Joseph and then or the police about Joseph. They're going to come investigate and they're going to know that she he's going to know that she did it and she's going to lose that trust that he has. So I think that she was like, I need to have more concrete evidence. Yeah. You know, even though she didn't because she planted the evidence. I think that she gets too into it and loses herself a little bit and doesn't know how to get out and she panics. So she realizes the only way for me to do this is to use my body because he's going to give in at some point. Yeah. That's how I read it at least. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Because her her way of of getting Joseph to uh, uh confess, it's not subtle at all. It's like you killed you killed her. He's like, uh no, I didn't, but it's and and it's it's kind of funny that even when she finally agrees to be uh his wife, the first thing she asks is <laughs> so you it is it was it Claire? Yeah. Yeah, so she says, oh, you killed Claire. Just tell me, you know. <laughs> that scene in the police station is, I, I took note of that too. It's a really good scene where a lot is happening. And it's, and I think it's indicative of a lot of what Buñuel does really well, which is staging a scene mm-hmm. without getting, just moving the camera to uh, different locations within a set in a scene and getting all these different types of emotions, uh, whether it's in a close-up or a wide shot, and then it's building this tension of her making this choice. And then when she leaves, the first isn't it the first person that she sees is the 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 neighbor, the the soldier, and that's where she maybe f- comes up with the with the idea. Oh, I could I could lead this guy on too, and maybe get married. Because he he is or he's fired his uh, servant slash lover and <laughs> yeah I think I think that is the scene where she decides to be like okay well I have an out on this Joseph thing because I'm not going to obviously follow through there was at no point that I did I think that she was falling for him but I was just questioning why she was using the methods she was using to get him but it's interesting and then when she does eventually. Well, she gets him in a sense that she plants the bottom of his boot near the crime scene and the police have been combing the area and they find it. I guess they get a tip that he goes in that forest, obviously. So that's why they came and they they arrested him. And he knows right away it was her. I, I think he knew all along that she's been trying to get him, but maybe he was also confused. That's, a, that's the other thing about it. I, I'm like, did he fully know and just didn't care and was like, well, she's agreed, so she's going to keep his, her word because he'd already made plans about they're going to move to Chabot and they're going to open a cafe and he had all these life plans set up for them. And he seemed like he was set on that, like it was actually happening. So, and then we cut to later and turns out there wasn't enough evidence to get him so he's being released and he was released he's got his cafe in Shobo. he's living a great life and then we get the big rally at the end which i think like really threw me out because i as all this is happening you keep forgetting oh he's been you know promoting all these these flyers these rallies that he wants to do not that he organized that one but uh it's been something that they've been talking about so when it happened i was like oh my god yeah i forgot that this is another thing that's happening it just brings us back into the real world of France that's happening at that time, as opposed to it being so contained to the rural place that they're living. How do you feel about that that ending scene? Because it's very different, obviously, from the entirety of the, the rest of the film. Yeah, it is. It's a, an abrupt change of location, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really, a, it almost feels like a, doc, a completely different film, like a documentary or mm-hmm. something. Because you do see glimpses of like the town, 
just outside of the manor, but it's not it's nothing as consequential as hundreds and hundreds of people yeah. in the streets. I mean, what I yeah, what I got out of that was that there was just no justice. Like there was the fascists got away with it. Like because he's a fascist, he murdered this, he raped and murdered this girl. He gets away with it, and then he's free to continue to be even be even more successful. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, uh, and yeah, it's it's. Uh, I know that when Joseph he he uh, uh, shouts "Vive Vivre Chap," that's what he says uh, to the crowd as they as they walk past his cafe, and they all mm-hmm. continue that shout. And that I look, I don't know if you you probably looked into that of like what that means but i had no idea what it meant until i looked into it and it's like the the name shep was of a right wing head of the uh paris police i think and he uh was responsible for barring buñuel's film l'age d'or from being screened in whatever it was 1930 28 or something like that and it's you know, it's it's a yeah, it's a definitely a condemnation of of that. <laughs> yeah, I just think it's such a as like as abrupt uh, as it is when you sit with it. Because I, I again remember the first time thinking it's so weird to end the movie like that. As it sat with me and I thought about it, and I was like, that's a really powerful ending because he, he's not wrong. Like these people would not face any consequences. They'd actually be rewarded for these things. And it's interesting to end this whole film that we've been watching on the most vile character. Like he gets the the ending scene. We see him and his successes at the end. We don't see any of the other people's successes who were like good people in this film even if you want to consider is celestine a good person or not she's still nowhere near joseph but he gets the prize at the end and it's very powerful to end the film with that and just a rally and it's just this is the end of this movie because obviously that's not i assume it's not in the book so this is him yeah him clearly commenting on france like yeah it's his, it's his second home or third home, but he's like, you guys, I, uh, yeah, you're not perfect. You're <laughs> liberty, price to pay for, for all that free speech of, and, yeah. And it's strange that it's still so relevant. Like it's never going to go away. That's, that's what I noticed the most. I was like, this film feels so fresh. Like it doesn't feel dated in any sort of way. And even though like it's set at a time before if they were filming it, it still feels so relevant because that's just like nothing's really changed in the world. There's still these people who are succeeding. So I think that's a big feat to have a film, you know, still stay relevant. And even if it's depressing <laughs> that it's relevant today, and it is like this should be, this should feel dated, but unfortunately it doesn't. Are there any other parts, like any scenes, any themes that we haven't covered that you want to chat about? One of the scenes that I was, uh, who was the, um, Mooney, Marianne, one of the servants, like the kind of, she was a bit like dim-witted, innocent in a way. There was that scene where Shel Piccoli's character, Monte. Yeah. 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 You know where I'm going with this. Yeah. Like once once he realizes that uh, Celestine and uh, Joseph are going to get married, he just quietly mm-hmm. and goes find goes to find Marianne and yeah, just tells tells her in his sleazy way like how much he loves her and how much he always like looked at her from afar in that type of type of way, and he says you know let's meet up. We'll, uh, I'm gonna, I want you know I'm going to come into your room tonight and you know, t- sweep you off your feet. And he, and a, a close up on her and she's weeping because I think she did have a little bit of a crush on him throughout the film. And it was really kind of tender. It was like, you know, that he's a slime ball and he's just wants to, you know, use her, but yeah. um, she felt genuine. And I was, yeah, the second time I watched that, I was really kind of moved by just how innocent she was. And then she, he leaves and then he comes back and, and says, go into the chicken coop. 
orders her to go to chicken coop and closes the door. And I was like, oh, well, we know that's not, he's not going to sweep her off feet. At that point, he's just trying to, he's angry and he's like, this is the, the option. And he realizes, I don't, I don't respect her enough to even pretend that I'm into her. I just want this done now. And it's it's really tough and just to watch that scene after that as it unfolds. And then it's interesting with her, she still doesn't even get that much of a happy ending. We see that she's now working for Celestine, essentially, and, and the soldier. She's still a servant, hopefully being treated better. It's just that she's moving from one job to another. And who knows what type of person Celestine will end up being in her later life as she gets more comfortable having money and status. So that's an interesting ending to that character that she made me sad, Marianne. Yeah, she's very, I like her face. Like she's got a very expressive face and like very mm-hmm. open eyes, you know, um, like very expressive eyes and kind of sad ending for her. What I, What did you think of the, in the first half of the film, the soldier always throwing stuff over the fence and like breaking the breaking like the the glass that held in the the vegetation, all these things, throwing his garbage over the fence. What did you make of like that whole relationship between the soldier and Monte? Mm-hmm. I, I guess it, it it becomes obvious after a while why he doesn't like him, but why I don't know. What did you think of that whole? relation i mean yeah as you said it does become obvious after a while while he why he doesn't but i i know on the first one she asked him celestine asked him why are you doing this uh and he says it's because malte is spreading rumors about him and his his maid about how they sleep in the same bed and they eat at the same table so he makes it out to seem like it's just like a i'm getting back at him for telling lies about me to the village and then there's obviously something deeper there so it's just like two adult men acting like young boys throwing stuff at each other because that's what they're doing and they're just not adult enough to you know talk it out and figure it out because neither of them respects each other like they don't care and they're just trying to hurt one another without getting into too much trouble because at some point Monte says to him i'm gonna i don't go to the authorities and he's like i do it mm. I'm yeah. a soldier. I'm a decorated soldier. They're going to take my side so you can go to the authorities, but they are not going to listen to you like a, I'm, you know, a Catholic Frenchman and you're not. Is it, do you think that was just another facet? I mean, it's obviously probably in the book, but that's just another facet of French culture to dissect is the relationship and racism. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I assume it's in the book because it's also in the other film too that exact thing where they, they're throwing stuff at each other. So I think it's just how, like, it's a commentary on, like, how rural people deal with things, you know, conflict. Yeah. It's never going to be too violent, but it's disruptive in their own childish way because they don't know how to, you know, don't know how to deal with things more overtly as opposed to someone like a Joseph who would be more violent about it if it was happening to him. Yeah, definitely. That he would... There probably would have been a death if Joseph was involved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, that dynamic's interesting with those two characters. And I know that Bunuel changed it so that Celestine and him would get married because that's not in the book. And he said he wanted to do that to give that character more security, but be more ambiguous about her motivations and kind of have you question why is she doing this? after all, because you're being led down different paths as to why she's doing anything that she's doing. So like, why did she end up marrying this man instead of just going back to Paris and leading a life in Paris? So I thought that was interesting that he made that decision for that character to have that ending. I don't know how you feel about that, if he knew that he had switched that or not. Yeah, I didn't know that he 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 altered it that way. It just felt convenient for her, you know, Maybe it goes into a lot of what, yeah, I mean, it's just survival. It's a lot of it is just how do I survive and climb and not yeah, climb out of my circumstances despite everything. Yeah. I always just kind of got the, just from her even leaving Paris to do this job instead of finding another one in Paris that she's hiding from something. 
that she doesn't want to go back to. And that's why she's constantly avoiding going back to Paris. We don't necessarily need to know what she's hiding from, but I think there's something. And that's why she's like, well, now I can stay away from the city and just live a more comfortable life here. Even if she's bored, at least she has money. Yeah, a lot of people choose that life. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Any other points? No, I mean, it's a a very layered movie. Buñuel is talking about a lot of things. And to be able to be specific, but then also ambiguous within a scene is remarkable, let alone... Nine, it's it's nine, in, it's an hour and thirty seven minutes or something like that. It's, I know. It, he he's incredible. <laughs> I know. I I'm always for directors like this and Bergman, who we previously talked about, who's tight runtime, but like you went and learned so much. There's so many layers within that ninety minutes, and then others. It's like it takes three hours to get even a chunk of that. Um, yeah. So I'm definitely pro. Like I. I think most of Bunuel's films are pretty tight time, time run. I don't think there's a couple that might be a bit longer, but he's pretty efficient. Yeah, definitely. Well, that leads me to the last portion of the show, actually, uh, which is end credits. So first question, as always, is the um, start of film. So we've been talking about Bunuel throughout this and different films that he's made and this this one I kind of struggled with, and I don't know if I made the right decision and what my starter film would be, but I'm going to stick with it. Uh, what film would you recommend people start with? And it's, it's kind of hard with someone who has had different kind of eras to their career. You can go about it that way if you want to recommend a couple, just be like, from this era or not. But what would you recommend they start with so that they can discover other films of his? Okay. Yeah. It's difficult with Buñuel because... The realist Buñuel, and then there's realist Buñuel. They're and they're they're of equal importance. But I would say if you're starting out with Buñuel, maybe start with the Exterminating Angel or the Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. The Discreet mm-hmm. Charm of the Bourgeoisie is total wonky, wacky, surrealist, beautiful surrealism. Exterminating Angel is kind of in the same vein of that, but it's a little bit grounded more in reality. I would say if you want to get a, a yeah, a handle on on what he thinks about bourgeoisie and French culture and Catholicism and sex and romance and all this discreet charm. But then there's also Nazarene and Viridiana, which Nazarene is a Mexican it was a, he made it in the Mexican era. And that is essentially about a man who takes on the tenets of Jesus Christ and he accrues to followers and wanders the land and experiences and has, has, I wouldn't say adventures, but he, he interacts with uh, people to sort of, I'm not, I'm not promoting this well enough, but <laughs> no, it's, it's, okay. it, it's really just like, this is, this is how Jesus Christ would uh, approach uh, all these different types of situations, but in a contemporary Mexican setting, one of Tarkovsky's favorite films. If that's. Oh yeah. Okay. I haven't seen that one yet. It's on my list though. Oh, Vera Diana is, is, is also in the same vein of exploring religion and Maybe uh, going too far with uh, certain tenets and how that can backlash uh, against against one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's hard for me to articulate, but other than just to say, go, go just explore his, yeah. his world. <laughs> exactly. Just go watch it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad one of the ones that you mentioned was the one I picked, which was uh, The Exterminating Angel, because I think it gives the surrealist side of him but as you said it's more grounded so you're not getting too far into the surrealism because that could put people off of the bat if that's not their vibe and then i think that it wouldn't be fair to give a more this is even diary of a chambermaid is a good one to start uh, it's a good film but i don't know if i would recommend this to start off if you're looking for Bunuel specifically i think you need to get up to this and you need to see the more well-rounded side of him because it's not really any surrealism here. This is more of an overtly political film. So that's why I went with The Exterminating Angel. Uh, despite, it's not the first one I saw. 
but I know Belgeur would have been one of the earlier ones I saw. That could also be a good one to pick, but I think the ones you mentioned are great. It's just it's hard. There's there's too many. Yeah. And there's <laughs> there's just so many different facets of what he's explored. So you really could go down any route. And there's gonna be stuff that you love and there's gonna be stuff that you like a little bit less. And that's totally fair because he's tried basically all of it and He's pretty good at most of it, in my opinion, at least. Yeah, he even uh, did a adaptation of uh, Weathering Heights by. Uh, did he? Yeah. So oh. he's uh, he goes all over the place. Okay, I'm gonna have to check that out after this. I did not realize he had adapted that. That'd be interesting. Well, last question, double bill. Uh, so, what film would you pair this one with, or what film or films would you pair this with, and? What would be the thematic reasoning behind the pairings? I was trying to think of movies where a person comes into a house or a space and kind of disrupts the whole system of how everything works in the house. And I was having trouble figuring that out. But the most immediate movie that came to mind was a film that Buñuel made uh, previously 10, maybe 10 years before this called Susanna. It's kind of got the same spine of this movie in that Susanna is this young woman who goes who who, who escapes from a mental institution and finds herself uh, in this manner in Mexico not unlike this manner in in France and mm-hmm. sort of uses her sexuality and her and her intellect to make the men in the house do whatever she wants them to do uh, first she falls a father, then she falls in love with the son, and she's just trying to play these games with how can she get more power in the house. Yeah, it's definitely a precursor to Diary of a Chambermaid, but it's a okay. lot more melodramatic, and it's it deals maybe a lot more with Catholicism because the the ending kind of kind of uh, tears up everything that had happened in the previous eighty minutes. It uh, so, but it, thematically, I think. Susanna would work pair well with this, and maybe Albert Brooks's *The Muse*, because uh, Sharon Stone plays this kind of script doctor muse to Albert Brooks's blocked writer's blocked screenwriter in Hollywood, and she just comes in and yeah, really inspires him, drives him crazy, kind of disrupts the house of Andy McDowell and. Uh, Everybody uh, in 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 Albert Brooks's life, uh, yeah, that could be also a very different uh, and tonally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be an interesting double bill for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm always down to pair anything with an Albert Brooks movie. So, but that is nice to have things that are like opposite tones. I went with a, a few. I'll quickly say, whenever I watch this, I always think of the rules of the game. The Renoir one, uh, 1939. And it's just rich people behaving badly. It gets a little bit dark and rules the game, but it's nowhere near Diary of a Chambermaid. And I think it's, I know a lot of people have been turning on the rules of the game lately. I don't know if they think it's not as great as it is, but like it's a really important film for me and I love it a lot. So that's, I always just think of them when I think of, Diary of a Chambermaid. It's always the one that pops up. But in terms of like another one that's like also rich people behaving badly, just being kind of nasty people is Joseph Losey's Accident okay. uh, from 1967. And that stars Dirk Bogard. A lot of the time when you're watching that film, you're like, why are these people doing any of this? And you realize, oh, it's because they're rich and bored. Like they have nothing else to do. Uh, so I don't want to give too, too much away from it, but it's a, it's a really interesting Joseph Losey film. And it's a it's dark. And it's Dirk Bogard, so I'm always going to promote Dirk Bogard. And I'm going to actually recommend another one quickly, because when you mentioned the theme of someone coming in and disrupting the flow of the house, it reminded me of The Servant. And that's another Joseph Losey, Dirk Bogard, where he comes in. And I'll any chance I get to talk about The Servant, I will one of my favorites. So there's that. And then the last one I thought of on this specific watch was, is another film I always talk about, but funny games. Mm-hmm. I just like the commentary on the rich and 
It was just Yeah. And it's interesting because the people coming and disrupting are the lower class. As, as far as we know, we don't know really, but we assume. And the violence that's within that film and the violence within this film, it would be uh, hard to watch them back to back. It'd be a heavy night. But yeah, I really thought of funny, funny games on this watch a lot. That would be a great watch. Yeah, I'd take a Valium break in between. <laughs> I think so. You really would. You'd be like, I need to just sit here for at least, you know, 20 minutes decompress before I get into the next one. But that's Diary of a Chamber Maid. I-, I hope that you've watched it if you're listening this far. And if you haven't watched it in a while, it's pretty, uh, I think it's on Tubi. That's where I watched it. And I'm pretty sure it's on Tubi in the States too. And it's, is part of the Criterion Collection, but the, it's an old DVD that's out of print. Uh, I'm hoping that they probably do a re-release of the Blu-ray, So, because I'd really like to own it. Definitely a favorite of mine. But thank you so much, Jeff, for coming back on and talking to me about this film. It was great. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Felicia. It was fun. Seeing Faces in Movies is an official podcast of the Royal Punk Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney, with intro music by Lamar Walker. If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesandmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesandmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. 